Hello, this is Dean Hess, Managing Editor of Respiratory Care. We are pleased that the May podcast is sponsored by Massimo. Always be ready for what's next with Massimo Patient Safety Net. Powered by clinically proven Massimo Set Pulse Oximetry, Patient Safety Net centralizes the display of continuous, high-fidelity patient data and delivers alarm notifications directly to care providers. Combined, this system can transform a care area to provide another layer of continuous monitoring. Data collected over 10 years at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center found that the use of Massimo SET and patient safety net helped reduce ICU transfers, rapid response team notifications, and costs in multiple published studies. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. And now I turn the program over to the Editor-in-Chief for this month's podcast. Hi, and welcome to the May 2021 Respiratory Care Podcast and Editor's Commentary. My name is Rich Branson, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. This month's Editor's Choice is a study of non-invasive oxygenation strategies in subjects with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure due to COVID-19. Menga et al. review their use of high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation via a helmet in COVID-19. They report outcomes of 85 subjects, 61% of whom required intubation and invasive ventilation. Failure was associated with greater severity of illness and elevated serum LDH. Failure was significantly greater in hypoxemia due to COVID-19 compared to other causes of hypoxemic respiratory failure. Hill and colleagues provide an accompanying editorial discussing the unique aspects of COVID-19 and the causes of NIV and high-flow nasal cannula failure based on underlying physiology. It's important to remember that at this point, the helmet is still not readily available in the U.S. There has been promising um, results, its use in using CPAP in both the U.K. and in Italy. Miller and others describe burnout and resilience resources in respiratory therapy departments in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. They used an online survey designed to determine the key drivers of burnout among the respiratory therapists. Of 221 responses, 72% of respondents reported experiencing burnout, yet only 10% of respiratory therapy departments measured burnout. Drivers of burnout included poor leadership, high workloads, and insufficient staffing. Resilience resources were not commonly accessed, but employee assistance and wellness programs were common. Evans opines that the stress and workload created by COVID-19 surge strained employee wellness and coping capabilities. She recommends development of programs to manage these stressors. Wyart and others describe the use of prone positioning and spontaneously breathing mechanically ventilated subjects with moderate and severe ARDS. So these are patients who are being ventilated but are being ventilated in the pressure support mode. This is a retrospective analysis that evaluated 39 subjects, half with COVID-19 ARDS. Prone position was evaluated in 84 episodes with subjects on pressure support and 29 subjects on volume assist control. Both groups experienced similar improvements in oxygenation and similar sedation needs, but subjects on pressure support were far less likely to require neuromuscular blockade. La Vita and DeSantis Santiago comment that prone position 
is clearly an important therapy to moder in moderate to severe ARDS. They caution that prone position in non-intubated patients and spontaneous breathing patients add some complexity and this move should not be taken lightly. On a number of occasions, Carolyn Levita has described the awake prone positioning and its success in COVID-19, but cautions that having patients who are so sick and short of breath try to turn themselves over is not as easy as it might seem. Fontella et al. prospectively evaluated the Medical Research Council scale and hand grip strength in subjects undergoing a spontaneous breathing trial in a multicenter trial. Only the MRC score predicted spontaneous breathing trial failure and prolonged mechanical ventilation. Hand grip strength was associated with acquired muscular weakness, but not spontaneous breathing trial outcomes. Lodice and colleagues evaluated 30-day readmission rates following mechanical ventilation for gram-negative pneumonia using a large national database. They mined the Healthcare Cost and Utilization Project National Readmission Database of over 32,000 subjects. Logistic regression models were used to evaluate subject characteristics associated with both mortality and readmission. Mortality rate was 24% during the initial admission and readmissions occurred within 30 days in 20% of survivors. Readmissions occurred within the first week in 40% of cases and within the second week in 65% of subjects. Mortality was high and readmissions frequent among this study group. We often think of readmissions with COPD, but in this case, readmissions following pneumonia are just as important. Samore and Chatburn performed a bunch study of inspiratory rise time during pressure support in a lung model representative of bronchopulmonary dysplasia. They evaluated three ventilators at identical settings, but varied rise time across the range of the devices. They found that adjusting rise time improved the balance of volume delivery between the test lung units, but resulted in an overall reduction in tidal volume. Sojar and others described modification of a portable ventilator with an external exhalation valve to allow shared ventilation. The system was tested in a lung model and independent settings for each test lung were verified. The modifications allowed for successful separate PEEP, tidal volume, and FiO2 for each model. This study was done with the LTV 1200, um, which has some import since that's one of the common ventilators in the strategic national stockpile. Although I think at this point, um, shared ventilation is best avoided. Zampagna and others evaluated the five repetition sit to stand test to evaluate pulmonary rehabilitation in subjects with asthma. In a study of 103 subjects with asthma and 108 with COPD, they compared the sit to stand test with other measures to assess rehabilitation outcomes. They concluded that the sit-to-stand test was a reliable outcome measure of pulmonary rehab for subjects with asthma. Loberger et al. retrospectively evaluated extubations in the pediatric ICU to determine the impact of daytime versus nighttime success. They studied 517 subjects and found no difference in success between daytime and nighttime extubations. They observed that surgical airway diagnoses extubations were more commonly accomplished on the day shift. The authors conclude that ventilator liberation should not be delayed by the time of day. Um, I think delaying extubation until surgical um, recovery is available um, in the case of those patients with surgical airway disease might be a good idea. Ramundo and co-workers compared the impact of closed versus open endotracheal suctioning in mechanically ventilated subjects. 
Using their crossover design, they evaluated pulmonary mechanics and hemodynamic variables before and after suctioning. They found that open circuit suctioning was associated with elevated airway resistance and suggest that closed circuit suctioning might have advantages. I know a lot of people who are listening to the podcast are going to say, well, closed circuit suctioning is the standard of care. Um, why are we even considering this? But remember, there's still cl- open circuit suctioning being done in many facilities, not hospitals, certainly at home, and in many parts of the world, um, the cost of closed circuit suctioning makes it, makes it inaccessible. Sagashima et al. evaluated the duration of apnea testing for brain death determinations to see if a shorter period of observation was sufficient. They determined the rate of increase in PaCO2, stratifying subjects by body temperature and the partial pressure of oxygen. Their results suggest that the time for determining brain death could be predicted by measuring the rate of PaCO2 increase. So in patients who are hyperthermic and have a low PaO2, it's possible that the brain death exam could be shorter. Pena Lopez and others performed a secondary analysis of a pediatric multicenter perspective study of ventilator-associated events. 90 subjects ventilated for greater than 48 hours were included, and VAE was defined per the CDC guidelines. VAEs were documented in 24 instances, and the use of continuous, short-acting sedative analgesic agents was a strong predictive factor against the development of VAE. The authors concluded that these sedatives should be preferred in the ICU. And if you practice long enough, you'll see these things come around. I can remember when patients were commonly only given um, sedation and pain control intermittently. And then some very bright young person said, boy, what if we could give it continuously so they wouldn't have these breakthrough problems with pain and agitation. And it turns out that over sedating them might actually be worse. Um, so time, times change and things that are old are new again. Lurster Wadamanem et al. have com- evaluated the use of high-flow humidified oxygen in subjects with a tracheostomy and conventional oxygen delivery by a T-piece compared to pressure support ventilation in a crossover study. Observations were made over a 30-minute trial and cardiorespiratory failures variables were recorded. In this cohort, there was no measurable advantages of high-flow oxygen compared to a T-piece. This makes sense, although when you think about high-flow nasal cannula and its positive attributes, why isn't there a change with tracheostomy? And it's because the tracheostomy already bypasses the upper airway dead space. And even in this configuration, you're still basically just doing um, a T-piece or blow-by. Wernley and others used a retrospective propensity-adjusted analysis to compare outcomes in elderly and very elderly mechanically ventilated subjects in the ICU. Subjects greater than 80-year-old were compared to subjects between 65 and 79 years old. The oldest group had a greater severity of illness and more frequent requirement for plateau pressures greater than 30 centimeters of water pressure. The 28-day mortality was 20% greater, but still remained less than 50% in the oldest subjects, and it was an independent risk factor for death. Of course, the definition of an elderly patient changes with your own age. Burr et al. evaluated twice-daily respiratory care department huddles on collaborative problem-solving. The authors sought to identify process improvement opportunities and bring problems to quick resolution. They identified over 350 PI opportunities, half which were handled within the department and half that required multidisciplinary action. 
They suggest that twice-daily huddles facilitated PI identification as well as resolution. Aquino and others evaluated the impact of home compressors used by subjects with cystic fibrosis on nebulizer function. They measured nebulization efficiency with each of the 146 compressors in the study. They determined that 39% of compressors were ineffective, not providing sufficient pressure and flow to aerosolize medication from the nebulizer. This is a classic case of a, a very low-tech study with very high importance. If the patients can't get the drugs that we want to deliver to them effectively for something as simple as the nebulizer or the um, compressor needs to be replaced, um, that's something that we ne all need to be cognizant of. Zhao et al. evaluated the impact of a standardized protocol for the treatment of hypoxemia and outcomes in subjects requiring venovenous ECMO. This before and after trial compared outcomes after implementation of a refractory hypoxemia protocol. Post-protocol, more subjects received prone positioning and fewer received high-frequency oscillation. I think that makes sense given the results of the um, high-frequency oscillation trials published several years ago. Pre-ECMO plateau pressures were lower and post-ECMO driving pressures were reduced. The authors conclude that the protocol improved compliance with lung protective approaches. Miller and colleagues provide a narrative review of high-frequency jet ventilation in neonatal and pediatric subjects. Differences in high-frequency jet ventilation and high-frequency oscillation are highlighted and the future research needs described. Sengbush et al. contribute a systematic review on the impact of smoking on maximum oxygen consumption. And Fegvik Olson described the function of positive expiratory pressure devices with and without oscillation in a systematic review. We appreciate you subscribing to the Respiratory Care Podcast and look forward to talking to you in future issues. Thank you.